How can we explain Russian war crimes? Aren't they rooted in a specific cult of violence present in the Russian history? Why is the value of life so low in Russian politics and society? You're listening to the podcast Explain Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So let's talk indeed uh, about Russian war crimes. How can they be explained uh, and whether they can be explained with this cult of violence, which is present in in Russian history, Russian culture, uh, at least there are some some elements of this. We have already made several podcasts about this. We have made a podcast, Crime Without Punishment. Uh, we have made a podcast also with Peter Pomerantsev about Russian sadomasochism. But let's try to develop this topic. What do you think? Yes, let's try to develop, but let's start from the statements. Let's start with uh, the, the the description with uh, w- with what's happening, and so with this surprise. I would not say surprise; I would say shock when we've seen what what does it look like. I mean, Russian invasion, what they really do. These last days, we received new news about a chamber of torture for kids, uh, specifically in Kherson and also in the east in Kharkiv region. And when you just you. you just cannot imagine what does it look like a chamber of torture for kids and there are some testimonies already fixed about uh, about teenagers being tortured in this specific chamber so this separate chamber and when you just try to 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 understand there is a kind of a blind spot here because um from the military point of view, we all know, so there are some, some cynic explanations, statements that look, this is a war, and during a war, everything happens, they, they target military objectives, and sometimes there are some civilians which are also killed, but this is not the case. Let's state that what we see with our, sometimes with our own eyes, we visited uh, uh, completely destroyed villages in the east with you a couple of weeks ago, and we recorded a separate podcast about it. When we see this this kind of violence, this kind of destruction, they, they are trying to target uh, civilians, uh, even if there is no military threat at that very point, we understand that we, 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 we have to explain that because this is not about military victory. This is not about military advancement. This is not about, um, about some r- rational explanation. This is something which goes beyond, right? Beyond this rational explanation. But what is this? I ask that question. Questions many times to people I was talking to. Uh, specifically, I asked this question to um, Anna Kalen Lebedev. She's a specialist in Russian Russian culture. And she, she wrote at least two books about Russia, one book about uh, soldiers' mothers during Chechen war, and another book, recent one, about uh, differences between Ukraine and Russia, actually. 
she is a French uh, researcher at that moment. And one point seemed to me be important in that context. She tried to explain that this is not about violence because violence exists in any kind of society, specifically in society during the war. And if we look intentively, we will easily find some some violence in any kind of society, in, in Ukrainian society as well. But... The, diff- the key difference here is that during decades, specifically last decades, what we see in Russia is a nominiz- normalization of this violence. If you take what is prison, for example, places of, of this violence, prison, uh, hospital, school, and then, and then military unit, this is about violence. And, uh, Progressively, the violence became something normal in, in, in Russian society. And also because Russia had a lot of wars we were not talking properly about. The war in Chechnya, then the war in Georgia, short war, but still it's a war. In, events in Transnistria back in the 90s, right? It was also war, uh, war operations. And then in, so in each time, so this is about normalization of violence in the society. And today you cannot imagine Russian society and Russian culture without these uh, traces of violence which are everywhere. Indeed, uh, this podcast, I would like to tell to our listeners that we have also a French podcast, podcast in French, which is called L'Ukraine face à la guerre. And you can uh, listen to this conversation of Tanya with Anna Colin Lebedev on this podcast. It's, it's indeed remarkable uh, when we look at, at, at this war, what is going on. Because, I mean, I just can, cannot imagine... Uh, what is the planning of these missile strikes look like? Okay, there are military generals, right? They, in order to understand how to make a missile strike against military bases, as it was the case in the first days of the war in February, okay, they need military planning, they need, uh, you know, maps of, of Ukrainian military bases. We understand that this is all more or less transparent. They need maybe satellite data, etc. But then they say with Surovikin, uh, when Surovikin uh, takes the command of, of this uh, uh, operation and uh, changes the tactics. So initially the tactics was, of course, to hit civilians. Uh, we all, all, all knew that. All, all, we all have seen that. But now the tactics is practically to hit only civilians, right? To wage the war against civilian infrastructure. So imagine you have the command and then you need to understand where to strike, what you should target. You should not you should target specific things, transformation stations, transmission stations. We should understand where they are located, what is the most important thing, how to hit these stations so that Kyiv suffers them all. So you need energy experts, like maybe some intelligent people with suits, with glasses, working in Russian energy ministry, working in some, I don't know, energy analytical uh, institutes that come there and explain, okay, in order to cut Kyiv from electricity, you need to hit this and this. And then they, they come back to their kids and uh, or, or grandchildren at home, they they buy some vodka. They they discuss things. They laugh. You know. They they play with their kids or whatever. Else. So quite normal people, but they actually participate in this violence and they don't ask a question. So right, 
I have an important notion to suggest to you. What do you think if you say that uh, Russian in, uh, in, in introducing the concept of war as punishment? So they are infliging war at Ukrainians, at whole Ukrainians, I mean civilians, whatever, UBB, Tunviv, Kiev, Odessa, as punishment. For, for, for disobedience. And it leads me to an important notion we discussed a couple of years ago when, when we were talking about this big famine of 32-33. The most important thing which Russians refused to admit at, during that years, and many, by the way, Western observers and scientists were not, uh, it was not easy for them to admit that, that Russians, the Soviets, at that time, they were using hunger not in a rational way. So they were not taking away only grain from peasants, right? Uh, we have testimonies that they were taking everything. So uh, even things they could not resell, they cannot use it. And then but, this food was so, ro- rotten in, yeah. in, the, in the storage. So this, is, this was about punishment by famine, right? And now we come to a concept which is visible. It seems to me it's visible now already. Punishment by the infliging this war, be it uh, strikes against energy infrastructure, punishment by cold, by absence of heating, absence of connections, because otherwise, rationally, you cannot imagine. They are trying to present these arguments stating that, well, we'll destroy everything and Ukrainians will not be able to transport Western weapons to the front line. We'll, we'll, we'll destroy railway. But this is clear when they hit, for example, trying to, to get to destroy some stations close to the um, to the town we live in, to Brovary. This is not about railway. This is about normal civilians. And they're trying to impose us this kind of punishment. And this kind of punishment, it, it means that they are... Uh, It's a specific, specific uh, kind of violence, right? This is as if you were, you had the right to punish somebody, as if you are a big, big person or, or big authority. You, are, you have an authority in, against, in face of other people and you have the right to punish them. So this is a, this patriarch model, you know, where they consider their leader to be a Tsar, to be a center of influence, a center of power, and everybody ha- have to be obedient. And what they will never forgive to Ukrainians, that Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian disobedience. So Ukrainians don't accept this model of, of Russia being the center of this world. And they are punishing. So and uh, because otherwise, there is no rational explanation, right? Yeah, we're coming back to your concept, crime without punishment and punishment without crime. So this is a, a specifically thing which we can call punishment without crime. And uh, this leads to another observation is that the problem, the big problem, which I think also uh, nobody really understands in the world when we are comparing Nazism and Stalinism. And uh, I, I see those round eyes of people shocked Sometimes somewhere in Germany when I say, look, we, we, we really need to say that Nazism and Stalinism, Stalinism are the same type of evil, not the same structurally. There are many differences, but morally they should be as equally condemned. So this is still a shocking thought for, for many people. And uh, that's, very, that, that's very bizarre because when you say this, people – People are trying to think that, okay, you, 
you try to relativize the, 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 the crimes of Holocaust, the crimes of Nazism. No, that's not where, what we are doing. We're trying to say that Nazism is an absolute evil and Stalin, Stalinism is an absolute evil uh, as well. But the, the problem, one of the differences is that Stalinism is still alive. Nazism is not alive. It was condemned. It was defeated. Of course, you can say that there are neo-Nazis all around the world. And, you know, this chasing neo-Nazis, including in Ukraine, was, was such a hilarious thing, actually. It was, of course, very stupid thing, very blind thing. But it was also a hilarious thing, as if you're saying, oh, no, neo-Nazism, well, it's, it's, it's here. It's not really defeated. So, we should chase it. Of course, we don't deny that there is a far-right problem everywhere and uh, it's, it's on the rise. But this is another type of the problem. This is a problem that there is evil which was defeated, which was condemned, and now it, it is kind of a – we, we, are, we, are, we are witnessing its rebirth, re- regeneration of this evil, and this is, of course, a very big problem. We, we should tackle it. But the problem with Stalinism is different. It has never – was never condemned, was never defeated, and never disappeared. So, who is Mr. Putin? Mr. Putin is a KGB guy. Who are those KGB guys? They are hairs of the Cheka and Kavadeh, all those people who were murderers during the 1920s and 1930s, who were killing people without any trial, without any law, without any procedures, without any proved crime. Uh, punishment without a crime. Punishment without crime is actually actually a crime, is, is, a mur- is a murder. And these people said that we are the judges, we are justice, and you people whom we killed are perpetrators, you are killers. So this is a... Uh, reinversed pyramid of justice. And I think we need to understand that that actually Putin is the hair of those killers during the Stalinism. So in this way, this evil, Stalinist evil is still alive. Yeah, and this is exactly why we have so much many problems to explain that to our audience. So we are people who who had lived this past. We all have this experience of Soviet Soviet regime, Soviet system in its, its late phase. But we have some problems to explain that to Western audience because uh, simply they just don't have that experience. I remember another conversation with a very experimented journalist, uh, Florence Obinas. A French journalist who followed a big number of wars and war conflicts uh, all around the world, be it in Iraq, in Africa, uh, in Afghanistan. And when she arrived to Ukraine in February 2022, she was astonished. She was told that Russians were deporting people, civilians, that Russians were doing that and that. And her first reaction was that she didn't believe because herself, she was a victim, a victim in Iraq. Uh, back in 2005, she was uh, uh, taken as a hostage by, 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 by fighters and she was kept there for five months. But this was for civilians. Civilians are rarely taken as hostages. Sometimes it happens to journalists. Sometimes it happened to other important civilians when they could be exchanged against somebody else. But she couldn't believe that thousands of people or even dozens of thousands of people could be deported with no clear aim. 
So, and this is this violence against civilian population, what was happening in Kherson, for example, and what is happening now in Melitopol. By the way, Russians started evacuating people from Melitopol, so the same scenario, and they were doing that in many other places, in Kharkiv region and surely in Donbass. So this is difficult to explain. The, the price of human life is extremely low in a totalitarian system. And even if we say, yes, Putin's regime is not is not the same exactly the same thing as Stalin's regime because there are still some differences. But what is common in between uh, totalitarianism of Stalin's time and Putin is that the the price of human life, civilian human life, is just very close to zero. So they just don't care. And when experts, military experts, specifically from the West, they state that Putin will stop when stop this war when. And his losses, the losses of his army will be at around 300,000 people. But that's simply not true. The population is one, uh, 140 million. I, 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 I cannot imagine that he, he will stop at 300,000. It will not stop him. So if we come back and look what was happening during the Second World War and these uh, Soviet tactics to kill people by thousands, I mean, it's their own soldiers, it will never stop Putin because simply because the life of civilian, of the enemy, or even the life of your own soldiers, it costs nothing. And this is not and this is a specific nature of this violence. I mean this is a this is dehumanization of, of people, of your enemies, but also of your own soldiers. You just just simply don't care about it. And it's extremely difficult to explain that to Westerners. That's what what is going on right now in Bakhmut, as, as far as we see, according to reports. So Russians are changing the tactics. They are not moving with big columns of equipment. They are moving with little, small forces of, of soldiers. And the soldiers who are sent on Ukrainian positions are normally killed by Ukrainians. Um and uh, there is a next portion, and then the next portion, and then the next portion. So these are people who are actually sacrificed. So pe- sometimes people say that they are people from the prisons, Russians, uh, R- Russians uh, imprisoned people who joined the Wagner group, and then they are sent uh, there. Or there are sometimes the newly mobilized people who are just sacrificed like that. I think there is a kind of uh, religious... Oh religious or mystical aspect in that. So uh, Russians, they cherish the cult of suf- uh, suffering. So making some parallel with this suffering of the population, be it their own population or population of the enemy, this concept of punishment by war, this is about that suffering could lead you to some kind of uh, enlightenment, some kind of transfiguration. And this is an idea I've already met in some in so, some Russian social uh, bloggers or whatever, they are trying to present this war as they presented, for example, the Second World War. And the, the bigger sacrifice is, the bigger an achievement is. So in this notion of heroism, in this sacrifice, this suffering is extremely important. So, uh, and this is the reason, I think, why Russian population, uh, a lot of Russians... They accept this model because they see the people had don't 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 reflect don't don't think really they think that all this suffering they 
they they go through i mean i mean prices but also isolation of russia so impossibility to travel this is about the suffering they the the price they pay for a better world in a way so for better yeah this is the masochism which you say a dark side or another side of sadism if you are accepting suffering on yourself you are accepting living in shit you are accepting living in very bad conditions and you and and you consider it not as a your problem of your responsibility that you need to fix but a kind of a punishment of god that you need to suffer in order to you know purify yourself then of course you will say that others should should suffer too and there is no no limit and, and and no human price and therefore you are okay with sending these people to to the front line and it's absolutely true that this is a repetition of the second world war because just imagine that for in battle for kiev in uh, 1943 the liberation of kiev by the red army cost red army 400,000 people so it's it's okay half in this million, man right? yeah almost half a million at least half a million this one battle for one city because the goal was to 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 liberate uh, kiev before the anniversary of the october coup d'etat uh, 1917 coup d'etat as as it was called at the time october revolution so nobody is thinking about this price nobody is thinking there about the uh, human life about the value of human life and this is the big problem in, I mean, we, we need to say it seriously. I mean, it's it also uh, these our estimations from Ukrainians are met with a big shock uh, in, in somewhere in, in, in the world, in, in the West, in the East, in the South. But uh, we should critically examine the Russian Russian culture, Russian intellectual tradition. And the problem of this intellectual tradition is precisely the very low value of individual life. Uh, if you take the big Russian philosophies like Vladimir Solovyov's, the idea of pan-unity, or these Eurasianists of the 1920s, or this, you know, all this big literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, etc. This is all about how individual disappears in something big. I mean, I think this is one of the leitmotifs of War and Peace of Tolstoy, how individual is so small compared to this big thing which is going on or you take dostoevsky and and on all the on the older and precisely if you follow that up and you look at what was happening in the 20th century during the soviet totalitarianism you'll also see how this individual uh, liberty and how individual price was so 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 smaller if compared to big ideas to big ideologies right so people were educated for many many generations like you are you should be useful for the society you should be that or that this is no place for individual liberty and still uh, the generation which was educated which lived in the soviet times is still here and this is a kind of transfer of these ideas to a modern world i would say that yes in a way uh, contemporary Russia is slightly different, is in any way different from uh, Stalinist time because they are not mobilizing millions at that very point and I would not, uh, uh, I will be surprised if millions would agree to mobilize. Uh, this is a difference because uh, uh, they are already, they were 
more or less more open to Western world for decades as well. So they could not repeat this battle for Kiev using millions, I, we hope at least, so at, le- at that stage, so because they don't just simply don't have enough people. But uh, in nature, this is exactly the same thing. So the devaluation and dehumanization of the, any human life, if compared to a big goal, if you ask a normal, I, I, I'm... Every time I'm shocked when I'm watching to what we call Vox Pop on, on the streets of Moscow and, or any other Russian city, when journalists, they ask uh, people, for example, a man, what do you think about the new wave of mobilization? And the response is quite frequently, uh, well, if they, if they call me, I, I will go there. And when a journalist asks, but why? What this war is about for you? Uh, normally people are not able to explain what this war is about. But they say, I'm not, uh, I'm not in position to explain you. This is not my job to explain what the war is about. I am small, but if, if motherland, Rodina, motherland says me, I mean Putin or whatever, Russia says me to go, I have no choice. So this is about that you, you have no right to think yourself and to ask you a question, even in the modern world, with open uh, borders, right? Putin didn't uh, close borders, right? So people just don't ask questions. And this is about the, they, they have no right to think all by themselves, right? Yeah, it's it's what we call outsourcing of thinking, outsourcing of responsibility. I'm, I'm not here as a Russian citizen to think. I'm not here to take responsibility. It's somebody else. Of course, we're not saying that all the Russians are like this. There are, there are many, many good, brave people who are making uh, protests, etc. But the critical mass of these people is so low that we, we don't see any any prospect of change. This can change, of course. I do hope that there is a generational gap and and the younger people are less and less, uh, will be less and less willing to accept this. Uh, but the problem is that these young people can, can immigrate uh, and already immigrated. So one of these uh, structural things of Russian society, I think it's it's this hierarchy, right? So there is no horizontal relations between me and and, and the other citizen. Um, all is going through a pyramid, through a triangle. So I only contact with the fellow citizens through a a nachalnik, through a a boss, and therefore my relations with this fellow citizen depends on the boss. If 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 the boss is disappeared. If the boss disappears, we don't know how they will don't they will not know how to communicate. And the problem is that uh, I think this is something that uh, is present in this Hobbesian concept of war of all against all. In the totalitarian society, uh, people if they're left by themselves are actually hating each other. They are they waging the war of all against all and. Uh, the totalitarian leader is actually is actually comes comes down this war and 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 says I will I will calm it down through big big violence that that's what's happening and therefore they they are afraid of losing this tsar they are afraid of losing this instance of of violence of punishment because they they are afraid that it will all collapse. I think this is the key, the key thing behind. Yes, yes, exactly. But an important, another important consequence of this state of things is that uh, it is 
fundamentally wrong to think, as many Westerners think and political leaders think, that you can you can explain something to Russia through normal negotiations, through a kind of a win-win game or kind of kind of uh, different arguments. Uh, this cult of violence, which exists in Russia, also makes uh, an unhappy situation, which consists that they just don't understand any kind of argument but they only understand the argument of force. What we we have problems to explain that to our audience is that, uh, as Zaluzhny stated many months ago in his famous article, so there is no symmetry in 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 forces, in in capacities, in military capacities, and we we should stop that because Russia and Russia political leadership and military leadership they will never understand any other kind of argument because their vision of of violence is is domination so they only understand the force it means that in the structure of domination so they will understand that the, your real partner real um real uh i don't know side of negotiation if only you show you demonstrate what you can do to them so this is about this is about strikes, right, against military targets somewhere deep in Russia. This is about capacities. This is about you can never achieve any significant results without showing that uh, that uh, you are strong and then you are stronger than Russia. That's yeah, it. I, I think I think what we need to do and what the whole world, civilized world, needs to do is just to break this idea present in Russia that – the boss, only only that person is the real boss who is capable of big violence. And and this is the problem in Russian language, by the way, in Ukrainian as well. And therefore, when we're when we're analyzing Russia, we also, as as our friend Vakhtam Kibuladze says, we need to also fight against an internal Russia, Russia inside ourselves, because there are many things which are which are still. In common, and I think Ukraine is is made a huge way out of this of this Russian world in the in the past decades. Uh, but the the word sila force and nasilia violence are actually uh, have the same root, right? So this is a perception that only that has force who is capable of violence. Only that person or country has sila who is capable of nasilia of violence and therefore i think for many many uh centuries in the russian culture there is this stereotype that who will be our boss who will be our our tsar only that person who is capable of enormous violence exactly and uh, what is the biggest violence you can commit okay you can send millions of people to death and this will only provoke inside your citizens not not a willingness to go uh, against the tyrant but adoration of the tyrant right he sacrificed so many people so we should adore him this archaic way of thinking is important for russians but i would also precise let let us be let's be precise here we are not talking about the possibility to 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 respond by the same means we are not talking about we are not calling for example our western partners to deliver arms which will be will be hit 
including Russian civilians or Russian hospitals or Russian kindergartens. We are not talking about that. We are talking about the demonstration of force against military objects. But the, the, the key issue is here that they should be quite far somewhere in Russia. So just to show capacity that this is this notion of force is extremely important for Russians. And if they see that the military capacities of Ukraine and its partners are high enough to get to targets deeper, very deep, somewhere in the deep Russia, they will their behavior will change. They will understand that Putin is not the, the only boss, you know. So this is in, would be an intelligent response, not not hitting civilians, but this demonstration of capacities is fundamental just to reinforce this order and their fatalism, accepting this circle of violence as something normal. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would like to <clears throat> I would like to say something, but um, I forgot. Uh, uh, the pro- the problem is that um, I mean within this cult of violence uh, which is present uh, in 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 this is by the way a taboo topic what you said right now so we were in France one month ago and I remember being on on a, on a French television and talking talking to French experts uh, journalists which were very very nice and sober and giving the diagnosis which is which is okay which is uh, from our perspective is right but the taboo topic for them is to hit the Russian territory and I think this is a taboo that people in the West, in the East, who are sympathized with Ukraine need to overcome one day as they overcome the taboo topic that. You can never fight against Russia. You will lose in three days, etc., etc. This, this is some process of overcoming your your stereotypes, right? Your your cliche, of course. And Ukrainians are already doing that. Of course, it's inevitable that Ukrainians should hit the Russian territory, not the civilians, but uh, the accumulation of of ammunition. Uh, the basis of airplanes, the basis of rockets. This is just obvious for us uh, because otherwise they will be, they will be attacking us. So this is a very important thing. But I would like to finish that thought that I started. Uh, so this cult of violence. Who will be the real boss? The real boss will be a person who is able to kill, who is able to send millions to death, etc. But there is another thing. Who is the real boss? The real boss is somebody who is capable of unthinkable violence. And what is the unthinkable violence for us humans? Is killing those people who are the most close to you, who, who you love so much, who are the most cherished by us humans, your kids, your children. Let's look at the pantheon of Russian leaders, the Russian Tsars. Ivan the Terrible killed his son. Peter I killed his son. Uh, Stalin didn't care about the life of his son. Uh, Putin, somebody, well, not killing his daughters, but somebody who is detaching from his family. So this is a paradox that actually... Russians are saying, okay, the family values are, you know, denigrating in the West, they are indicate. But the truth is that the family values, this, you know, warmth and love which is, exists in a family, family as the most, the, the place where you got the most love and warmth, right? 
this family doesn't exist in in, in Russia because uh, at least as a as a as a symbol because we see all these conversations between soldiers and 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 their mothers we see that kind of a very hectic relations very horrible very brutal relations but the idea of the leader who doesn't have a family what does it mean that putin doesn't have a family that he is you know a distant person that nobody can approach him this is an idea that he doesn't have close people he doesn't have uh, the people who are who who are the closest to him and therefore he is capable of extreme violence. And by the way, let's look at the paradox because uh, official Russian propaganda is talking a lot about family, right? About these family values, about this family at the core of the society, about this patriarchic view of the society, about the father which is a chief, etc. But if you really look at that, you'll see that this is also a propaganda for for citizens and this is not about real family this is not even family this is not about warmth of the family this is not about the uh, about dear people to you this is about domination so when they talk about family values they talk frequently about about domination of men over women or domination of men uh, adults over kids about uh, obedience once again So family is also a form of domination and not a form of uh, of being together or sharing things, uh, any kind of horizontal communication. And this is important to say that this isolation of uh, Russian political leadership of Putin and some others and in the history as well, it shows this, this kind of detachment once again from a normal human human dimension, human feelings, human warmth in a way. But detachment, what for? To do what? To do exactly, just to execute a bigger idea, be it ideology. We just have problems explaining what is exactly this Putin's ideology. But nevertheless, this ideology about being something bigger in comparison to what you really are. I think this is ideology of violence. If you read one of the latest posts of Alexander Tugin, this uh, crazy fascist, neo-fascist ideologist of Russian neo-Eurasianism, he precisely says that we need to return to hierarchy, there should be a tsar, women should know their place, um, they should be really, uh, our life should be in, in singing religious songs, you know, women should be dominated by men, uh, abortions should be pro- uh, prohibited, even divorce should be prohibited, and, uh, you know, Family violence should not be prohibited. So this is this is the world. And maybe a final thought that uh, when we think about violence, why we focus it on, on it so much? Because I think that this is a topic which is underestimated when when we look at this Eastern Europe, when we look at this geography, this climate. And uh, the 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 key thing is that. The concept of modernization uh, meant absolutely different things for the Western world and for the Eastern Europe because for the Western world, starting from the late 19th century, from fin de siècle, from the secession, from Art Nouveau, uh, this was a, a process of gradual individualization and gradual hedonism. There was a process of enlarging the space for pleasure, for, uh, for um, hedonism, for... Uh, of demonism, for happiness. 
And then there was fascism and Nazism who tried to break it, who tried to say, no, 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 we come back to the cult of violence and of suffering. We will, we will make all, you all suffer. Of course, the First World War first, uh, this was a break in this cult of, you know, hedonism and then the Nazism and fascism and then the Second World War. But after the Second World War, this actually hedonist revolution of the early 20th century came back. And uh, while it came back, it led to the equation between modernization and the expansion of the of the space for pleasure and the space for uh, happiness. This is, of course, has its own problems in the Western society because there is consumerism, so industrialization of hedonism, which is consumerism. But in the Eastern Europe, the process was like Marxists came to power and say, you will have happiness somewhere in the in the distant future. This was a kind of a apocalyptization of hedonism. And that means that now we will go to this future with lots of sufferings, with gulags, with killing of millions, uh, and you will all suffer and you will probably have some pleasure in the distant future. And I think this is... This is one of uh, one of these things that are still in the Russian society, this inability to have a normal human pleasure and therefore redefinition in, of pleasure in terms of violence and suffering. The only pleasure you can have is actually to make others suffer. And if you make others suffer, that means that you suffer less than the other. If you suffer less than the others, that gives you pleasure. And this is, I think, the most perverted things about it. Yeah, this is a brilliant argument on your part. I cannot, can only agree with that this vision of beating a totalitarian regime in Soviet times, this suffering in name of great idea, or be it now, this suffering, human suffering in, in name of some, 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 some idea of strength and this suffering uh, that Russian cherish. Yes, indeed, it explains quite a number of things in what Russia does actually in Ukraine. Yeah, so this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. And my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist, um, head of international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Uh, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.